Hello, and welcome to the Wild Heart Meditation Center podcast. We release these episodes every week on Wednesday mornings, and the best way to support us is by clicking subscribe and taking a moment to rate the podcast wherever you are listening. If you'd like to support our efforts to keep the nonprofit Meditation Center open in Nashville, you can donate via Venmo by sending your donation to at Wild Heart Nashville, or you can make a donation through our website, wildheartmeditationcenter.org, by clicking the Donate tab. Peace and love. Hope you enjoy. I was on a retreat a few years ago with one of my favorite teachers that I love dearly and respect named Ajahn Sachito. And he's been a Thai forest monk for 40 plus years. Uh, It's rare that he comes to the U.S. And so I got into this retreat and I sat the retreat. And on probably the second to last day, we were in the, the meditation hall with him. And there was this really heartfelt moment where he was sharing his appreciation with us. He was telling us how grateful and inspired he was being in our presence and doing this practice together. And I remember in that moment, there's this just visceral feeling of love coming alive in the room. This really beautiful moment of connection. And then there was this hauntingly familiar, overwhelming feeling that felt like a mathematical proof that if this circle of love was radiating out from where Ajahn Sachita was sitting, that I was somehow sitting just right outside of it. And for me, this visiting tendency, this familiar feeling that I had is a kind of a shadowy figure that's been by my side most of my life. Not quite feeling like I belong. For a long time, there's been this part of me that's been longing to be loved, but has been crowded out by all of the parts of me that are striving to be something that could be loved. My strategy became over the course of my life that if I could figure out the person that I needed to be, if I could figure out how I think I should be or who you want me to be, then only, and only then, could I love myself, accept myself. Now, this isn't anything intellectual. It's not like I thought this out. (laughs) But it's just this feeling that lives under the surface, or this mind state, whatever we want to call it, that once I could become somebody different, I would be loved. Now, in this moment, for me, this is a powerful mixture of what the Buddha calls the hindrances, these coverings, these tendencies that obscure our our Buddha nature, our heart, our citta, our heart and our mind. And for me, it was a three hindrance attack, so I didn't just have one, I got jumped by my mind. They all jumped in there at the same time. There was doubt, this kind of looming sense of distrust in the vulnerability that was present in the room. I talked about earlier the myth of authenticity, this part of me that just didn't quite trust that love, that connection. And if I couldn't trust it, I, of course, couldn't be a part of it. And so there was also this kind of craving and this longing to be seen or to be acknowledged. And also aversion, this despair of feeling like I don't belong. And for me, the most formidable hindrance in this hindrance cocktail was doubt. It's because of my distrust and vulnerability that I couldn't feel a part of the love that was being freely offered in the room. So it left me being longing to be seen and acknowledged and feeling despair that I wasn't. The the Buddha sets a really high bar for metta. 
later on tonight will read to you, or maybe I will today, we'll see, the Metta Sutta, where the Buddha really talks about the illimitable quality, the sublime quality of love, the unconditional quality of love. Nothing excluded, nothing left out. And today, as we do metta for ourselves, I think of this as, sure, nothing excluded in the world and other beings and other people. But when I think about all of the parts of myself that I've sat just outside of the circle of my love, my awareness. This means not just what's easy to love. Oh, I'm a good public speaker. People tend to like me or... You know, but those haunting parts of ourselves, those annoying parts of ourselves, the needy parts of ourselves, the painful, not just what's easy to love, but what's longing to be loved. Because the more open that we are, the more vulnerable we feel. Vulnerability literally means, in its Latin root, susceptible to woundedness. So if I'm reaching to the limits of this illimitable quality of love, it means that the vulnerability must be huge. And it takes a lot of courage to do what we're doing. Who wants to sit in a room by themselves, yet alone for a day, two days? just staring at the heart and the mind, staring at the pain in the body. I think it takes courage. Interestingly, courage, also Latin, means of the heart. For me, I built the walls around my heart for a good reason. It's like annoying when you get to the place where you're like, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to have a soft, open heart, but that shit's scary. <laughs> the teachings assure us that the natural state of the heart and mind is bright, radiant, luminous, and that it is only obscured by visiting tendencies of the mind, but within itself is already peaceful. The first noble truth the Buddha, I think, sets out to normalize our dis-ease, our stress, our difficulty as human beings. When he taught the first noble truth, I don't really take it as a capital T truth in the sense of like a religious thing to believe in. I really much feel like it's a, hey, have you noticed how hard it is to be human? How vulnerable it is to be human? born into a body that ages, that becomes ill, that this heart is separated from all of the things that are dear to it at one point or another, that the future is not predictable. Sometimes you get what you want. Sometimes you get what you don't want. When I heard that teaching, it was a huge relief. <clears throat> Because how I felt when I first heard it, literally in the first Dharma talk that I heard on the first noble truth, I had this experience that you mean to tell me that there's nothing wrong with me, that I feel fucked up, that I feel depressed, that I feel suicidal. Because I had tried for so long to be a good person. I was clean. I was pretty ethical, living in my integrity, but I still didn't feel good. I didn't know yet how to let those parts of myself into my awareness. I didn't know yet how to hold those parts of myself with compassion. There was no teaching that was going to give me that. I had to do the same practice that we're doing together today, cultivation, development, an opening of the heart. You know, it's like sometimes the heart wants to open, but it's like just a little bit at a time. And then it's like, no, I'm going to close back up. 
It's got to get used to that. Interestingly, the word dukkha, my understanding of it is the etymology of it. Dukkha means bad, empty. And probably how it was referred to at the time, I've heard it said that it's like a wheel where the axle doesn't quite fit right into the wheel well. So there's this bad, empty space between the axle and the wheel well. And there's a feeling of a disjointedness in the way that the wheel turns. And the Buddha is saying, this is our life experience. It's like this wheel that's just not quite right. Like the shopping cart that we get with the dead wheel. Just lugging that thing around. Disjointedness, but I also like to think about it as a separateness. It's a feeling of separateness. And when I think of separation, I mostly go to the ways that I feel separate from others. The times in my life I feel ostracized or unacknowledged or uninvited or estranged. But what I've learned through meditation is that I'm peering directly into the ways that there are parts of my experience that have been ostracized, unacknowledged, uninvited, and estranged from my own heart. And interestingly, this word chitta means mind, means heart. It also means awareness. The Buddha kind of says the cause of dukkha is ignorance. Very interesting. We could get intellectual about what that means, but ignorance, ignorance means ignorance. <clears throat> excluded from awareness, separate from my presence, my full presence, my vulnerable presence, my heart, my mind. And this disjointedness occurs because these visiting tendencies of the mind come in it. The doubt, the craving, the aversion that I experienced on the retreat with Ajahn Sachito, they came and they, they tricked my mind. They cloud it. And how they trick the mind is they're just these visiting states. They're mind states. They're somewhat habitual. They're somewhat karmic. They're somewhat whatever you want to call them. They come. But what happens, and this is really important, is we identify with the mind states as ourselves instead of, oh, this is doubt or this is aversion or this is a longing or this is this familiar feeling that I can open my heart towards. Rather than be aware of the mind state, I became the mind state. In that moment when with Ajahn Suchito, I was aware that the, I wasn't aware that this mind state was doubt or craving or aversion. I became the one that didn't belong. Mindfulness is a superpower. The ability to say, hold on a second, what's, what's happening right now? Vipassana, to see clearly into. Vipassana, to see clearly into. What's happening right now? Oh, this is that familiar feeling. There's the doubt again. I can't trust this. There's the craving again. I long for this. There's the aversion again. I'm not a part of this. And it's not our fault that the mind does this. I think even in, in neuroscience, they talk about one part of our brain that experiences and the other part of our brain that interprets. And in the interpretation, the experience becomes something that is happening to me, is because of me, or is a fundamental part of who I am.
The teachings assure us that the natural state of the heart and mind is bright, radiant, luminous, and that it is only obscured by visiting tendencies of the mind, but within itself it's already peaceful. So for Siddhartha, he had left his life of luxury and made the hard decision to leave everything behind and to go out in search of a higher happiness, a happiness that couldn't be found in the privilege of his upbringing. And he met spiritual teachers and he practiced and temporarily the mind states, the visiting tendencies would subside, but then they would come back. And he said, how do I stop this suffering, stop these visiting tendencies? He said, well, the problem must be that this body and this mind is so addicted to pleasure that I have to punish it. I have to deny my body. And he hung out with some pretty hardcore dudes, the ascetics, and tortured his body and mutilated it and starved himself. And on the brink of starvation, of course, a woman had to come and help nourish him back to life. Sujata, a really great act of compassion. This farmer's daughter came and brought Siddhartha this rice porridge, and once he was healthy enough, he set out on this resolve to sit down underneath the Bodhi tree and to not get up until he had seen through the suffering and confusion in his mind. And so he sits down and he pays close attention to his mind and his body. And he sits there, and he sits there, and he sits there. It's like that three o'clock sit in the afternoon feeling his breath as it comes and goes, investigating the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral tone of every thought and feeling and sensation. He opens his awareness in a more compassionate way, and this is a breakthrough. Not trying to stop any experience, no matter how unpleasant it may be, but instead meeting each moment, each thought, each feeling, each sensation with kindness. But just as the Buddha started to open up his awareness, he was visited by a demon named Mara. Mara's first line attack was anger, hatred, ill will, violence, shooting arrows and spears down on the Buddha. Attempting to undermine his resolve and to get him up off his seat. I relate to this on retreat when I'm sitting with the pain. Fuck, what did I get myself into? I know pain's a part of it, but it's not supposed to be this painful. I can't tell you how many times I've convinced myself that I was going to have to amputate my own leg with some scissors in the dining hall after the sit. Like, it's a medical issue. <laughs> Getting up, and literally like two minutes later, I'm completely fine. <laughs> Shooting arrows and spears. Raining down aversion. Hatred sometimes. So that didn't work. He opened his awareness. Loving compassion. Mara's second line of attack was tanha, this craving for sense pleasure. A harem of beautiful women dancing naked arrived to tempt him out of his seat. And I like to think of this not just as sexual desire, but I like to think about it as like the type of craving that your mind promises you something better when you're meditating. There's something else I could be doing. You know, that kind of happiness that always exists just around the corner and just in the next, you know, 
episode on Netflix. I mean, fuck them. They've learned how to just feed it to you. You don't even have to go to the screen anymore. And that doesn't work. The Buddha sees right through it. He sees, oh, this is craving arising in my mind. Opens his heart with compassion, lets it be there. He rides the crave wave. It subsides. What's next? Mara takes one final stab, his most formidable opponent. Doubt. And he challenges the Buddha and he taunts him with criticism and with judgment. Who do you think you are? And when that doesn't work, he starts to doubt the practice and the path. And he says, I don't even think this is going to work, dude. Like you've been on this for seven years and now you're sitting under this tree. Probably not going to happen for you. And to prove his resolve, what the Buddha did is he took refuge. I like to think he has this realization that this is the only experience that exists. This is the truth. This is the way because it's here. And he touches the earth, touches the ground. The four elements, earth, air, fire, water, that make up all forms in existence on his side as he continues to be mindful and aware of his mind and body. He seeks refuge in staying in the present experience, present awareness, radiating loving kindness. For me, I'd spent so much time building walls around my own heart You know, I I wasn't having tea with Mara. I had let him move in, and he became my landlord. You know, that by the time I got to the practice, I didn't feel even connected to my own heart. And like I said this morning, I believed in loving kindness as an idea, but I didn't feel capable of it. I felt so disconnected from it. But I was at this point in my life when I came into Dharma practice where I'd also spent so much of my life turning away from my own heart that I started to realize that I didn't deserve that either. So I wasn't capable of turning towards it and I couldn't any longer turn away from it. And I was in this place, I call it Dharma purgatory. I've been here in a couple points in my life and I love this moment as a therapist when people are just suffering and they're at the depths of desperation and despair. It's a beautiful moment. Some people call it the gift of desperation where something just needs to let go because the problem's not out there. There's nothing intellectually to do. There's nothing to solve. There's nothing to fix. Your happiness isn't in the next thing. You know it's not anymore, but you don't know where it is. And what are you going to do? Your heart just breaks open. Fine. It's why I like to think of this community as the community of the brokenhearted. Right? What's your uh, Dharma name? Rogahari Sogatura. Rogahari Sogatura is Mikey's Dharma name, and it means? Healer of the brokenhearted. Healer of the brokenhearted. Very fitting. You know, we're not usually the people that wanted to be here. I had a, one of my wife's friends one time call me a reluctant yogi. She's like, you don't even like to meditate or yoga or any of this shit. I was like, yeah, I hate it. <laughs> She's like, why do you do it? Right? I'm, I'm kind of one of those people that had nowhere else to turn. The teachings assure us that the natural state of the heart and mind is bright, radiant, and luminous, and that it is only obscured by visiting tendencies of the mind. Within itself, it's already peaceful. 
So I asked you earlier, have you all noticed any of these visiting tendencies of the mind? The Buddha calls them the five hindrances. Craving, aversion, restlessness, lethargy, and doubt. Ajahn Chah calls them strange and wonderful creatures. You know, the idea of the already luminous mind, the already awake awareness, the heart that is naturally radiant but only obscured is more of a Mahayana tradition kind of thing. But it's interesting, my understanding, even in early Buddhism, there's this term called Nawarana, which means covering up, that there are these coverings, these obscurations, Something here, as the Buddha says in one of the discourses, he says, so very hard to see. He says it's, it's subtle and it's sensed by the wise. In, in the early discourse on the teaching of the five hindrances, the Buddha talks about the natural state of the mind being like a clear bowl of water. And that the five hindrances are these different ways that the water is affected, that the clarity of the water is affected. The first is sensual desire. And here the Buddha says it's like the water, it's like your chitta, your heart and your mind has been colored with dye. It's the old rose-colored glasses metaphor. That sense of craving of the promise being in something outside of this moment. And this can be in a sensory pleasure, a pleasant sight or sound or smell or feeling. It can be a pleasant thought that we want to entertain. That little impulse to go get tea during the walking meditation. And it's not a problem, right, that our brain has come to kind of equate pleasure with safety and comfort with safety. And there's really nothing wrong with pleasure and comfort. It's just that when we get caught in this kind of prolonged dependency of compulsively following the mind's craving, always looking for satisfaction in the next thing, the next sight, the next smell, the next taste, the next feeling, the next experience. There's always kind of this hope that the next thing is going to provide a type of comfort. But the problem is that that comfort needs to constantly be replenished. There's no end to it. The Buddha calls this perpetual wandering So pleasure is not the problem, it's the relationship, it's the visiting tendency around pleasure. Our biology likes it, and so the mind chases after it and says, your happiness is going to be in that next scoop of ice cream. That's sense pleasure, but I think the the harder variety of craving is the bhavatanha, the craving to become. That the, my happiness is someplace outside of this moment, but it's in a better and more valuable version of my life. A better and more valuable version of myself, a better and more valuable version of my job, of my partner, of my life. This craving to become someone. The implication being someone that I'm not right now in this moment. So the interesting thing about craving is if we actually really investigate it, there's this sense of lacking in a complete kind of disconnection with the present experience. Around this craving uh, to become, Jonathan Foyer says, sometimes I can hear my bones straining under the weight of all of the lives I'm not living.
You ever feel the pressure of becoming? So my admired teacher, Ajahn Sachito, says, Tanha is not just desire. It's a desire that's not satisfied, not satiable, because it just shifts from one emotional need to the next, from one sense of achievement to another goal. It's the desire that comes from a black hole of need, however small and manageable that need is. And so bringing loving kindness to the mind that craves. It's not that the hindrance doesn't arise. It's not that craving goes away. Remember, this is a practice of cultivation. There's habituation. There's karma. My understanding, this is my confidence through the practice over the years, is that the karma just needs to burn out. It's nothing to fix. It's nothing to solve. You can't do anything. This is just my understanding with the craving. Sure, you don't have to jump on the thought and go do the behavior, but beyond it just being there in the present moment, it's got to be there. When I think of letting it go, I don't think about pushing it away. I think about letting it arise and pass. This is kind of one of these insights that we can sometimes get through mindfulness is that all feelings, all mind states self-liberate. We sit here long enough, how I felt this morning is not how I feel now. Sure, there's maybe a tinge of it or it gets reactivated in a part of my mind and my body and my memory system and it, it re-arises. But then it subsides and it re-arises and it subsides and craving is like this. Sometimes we just have to let it burn out. But we can have, as Mikey said, this gentle assertiveness at times with the mind. And we can say, hey, mind, thanks for that. Not right now. An act of love. A healthy boundary with the mind. Now, there's a type of craving or clinging, really, that can masquerade as loving kindness. So I want to take a moment to talk about this. This is more in, I think, the commentaries than the original, the OG Buddhist text. But they sometimes refer to this as the near enemy of loving kindness. And it's when our love, with all of its wholesomeness and intention, turns into attachment. You know, where in particular for another person, if I am wishing them loving kindness, the loving kindness can sometimes have this sense of expectation or the sense of feeling that we know what's right for them, or sometimes a sense of control, or sometimes we need the other person to be happy so we can relax. And so it's, again, it's this kind of like, attachment to the outcome rather than unconditional. And there's this understanding that we have to cultivate this chitta through our own effort and endeavor. No one can do the work for us. There's something I really trust about the Buddhist teaching, but geez, it's, it's unfair. You know, like I want a religion where Something else got my back and is going to help me do the heavy lifting. You know what I mean? But the Buddha's like, hey, man, you got Sangha. We're in this together, but you got to do the fucking work. I'm like, man, all right. I guess I'll go sit a meditation retreat and stare at my mind. Try to open with loving kindness. But then the actions flow forth. Loving actions start to follow. We see this cause and effect relationship between developing a mind of loving kindness and acting in a way that is loving and kind. The second is aversion and ill will. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on because it's just kind of the other side of the coin. But the Buddha describes this as like if your mind is already naturally radiant and peaceful, 
the aversion when it comes through is like boiling water. And instead of wanting something, the promise of something, it's kind of the wanting something to go away. It's this impulse or this habit of mind to uh, resist. You know, even the animal body, the tendency to tense up. And again, this isn't our fault. It's like the body doesn't like pain. This is, uh, and as far as I'm concerned, this is born in, because I have a three-year-old, and she does not like anything unpleasant. And on retreat, you know, even like with her, I try to soften with that aversion. You know, I try to kind of teach her how to be with the pain. In the same ways that we learn with mindfulness, to acknowledge it and be aware of it. And to be kind and gentle with it. Like earlier I said, I think of meditation sometimes as just kind of babysitting our mind. I don't mean that in a, you know, any judgments on being a babysitter, but parenting, babysitting, whatever makes sense. You know, seeing clearly, responding wisely. And sometimes we, we have a hard time acknowledging when aversion is present because in a meditation retreat, we might try to just meditate it away. You know, like this happens all the time for me. It's like I'm doing loving kindness and my mind's agitated or there's something unpleasant. And I'm like, no, just love it. Don't hate it. And I do the metaphrases at the aversion with more aversion. I'm like, take that, fucking aversion. I love you. And, and I'm for real, though, in these moments, like this has been a big part of my experience on retreat, actually. In these moments, I try to just be like, okay, like, just let the agitation and aversion be here. You know, like that is an act of loving kindness, just to be like, I can stop the phrases for a moment and just breathe and be like, yeah, this is hard right now. That's okay. You know, I don't, this doesn't need to go away. I don't need to keep working to push it away. It just can be here. And the Buddha taught loving kindness is an antidote to ill will and resentment. You know, and of course, anger is a signal. You know, it's an emotion. It's like the Buddha didn't talk a lot about emotions, but my guess is he would have called it an ethically neutral mental factor. It's kind of like a, it's a feeling. Sometimes it can signal where a boundary needs to be established or something that needs to be communicated or, you know, in some experiences, a situation may need to change. Like I keep going into the same situation and that's why I'm so angry is because it's not working out for me. <laughs> it's like, you know, and so anger has some wisdom to it. But once we get the anger from the wisdom, I think the fine line here is the Buddha calls it the honey tip dart is anger is kind of quite seductive too. And there's a fine line between noticing the, ouch, that hurt, and the injustice that turns into resentment or ill will. I'm going to get back at them. I'm going to you know, make them feel like I feel. And if I'm not going to do that in a violent way, I'm going to do that in a passive way. I'm going to shut down and not talk to them. And you know, all of these kind of ways that Anger can really turn into a deeply rooted pattern. And so loving kindness can be especially towards difficult people, which we're not doing, you know, on this retreat. But uh, outside of retreat, you know, doing loving kindness practice towards some of the difficult people in our lives can be really It can transform our anger. We can grab the wisdom that arises out of it and leave the rest. I want to talk about the next two as a pair. Lethargy and restlessness. 
Lethargy is uh, the bowl of water that has algae and moss growing in it. And restlessness is the bowl of water that's stirred around by the wind. Lethargy and restlessness are about our mental energy. This is a really, for me, especially recently, has been a really challenging and quite powerful hindrance. I don't get restless much anymore, but the lethargy is real, y'all. You know, and there's uh, lethargy that is just, I'm tired. I need rest. But there's lethargy kind of as a hindrance or, you know, you might kind of call it a defense mechanism in some way. Like the brain kind of, the mind kind of shutting down or shutting out something that's maybe unpleasant or hard to be with. And the Buddha talks about the lethargy in two ways. He talks about it really as sloth and torpor, these kind of old school Shakespearean-like kind of words. And sloth means a lack of driving power or reluctance to work to make an effort. Right? It's this kind of like, this is the, the type of lethargy where you just keep hitting the snooze button in the morning. Like maybe you're not even tired. You just don't want to get out of bed and go. <laughs> I call it the hard to get up and go part of lethargy. Torpor is a sluggishness of our uh, mental factors. So it's hard to access our attention or to be curious or interested. And of course, the, the reason why this is powerful is because it's hard to practice mindfulness when there's not attention. And one of the helpful things I've learned with uh, lethargy is because it's been such a pervasive visitor for me over the last couple years is to really soften my relationship with it. Even loving kindness there. Okay, there's sleepiness in the mind. Watching my mind kind of come in and out of these states of zoning out or you know, checking out and then coming back in or tiredness and then alertness. On retreat, we can also do standing meditation. Uh, a lot of what we consume affects our physiology in a way that makes us tired. Uh, the food we eat, the amount of caffeine we use, nicotine, really anything we consume affects our mind, you know. So the Buddha encourages practicing wise consumption as one of the ways to work with lethargy. Sometimes loving kindness can have a bright side to it, a warming up quality. So sometimes loving kindness can be energizing. It's like the uh, in tranquility practice, they talk about piti sukha. And PT is like this kind of, uh, what do they call that? This vitality, this kind of energy, this alertness, excitability. You know, like if your friend came into the room and you weren't expecting them, like, fuck yeah, you're here, let's party, right? That good feeling of metta, that excited feeling. Mikey likes this feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that can help with lethargy. And the... Uh, other side can help with restlessness, this kind of breathing in, calming the mind, breathing out, softening the body, as we're saying the phrases, breathing in, calming the mind, settling into the body, softening the body. A lot of times restlessness shoots up into the head, the, the literal word for it. I don't know the Pali word for it, but it's translated to mean quivering above. The mind that isn't quite settled in. Loving kindness has this kind of settling effect at times. It's like, oh, you're welcome here, restlessness. 
You know, I learned this as a, a Dharma teacher, as someone that a lot of people tell me that I appear very confident when I do public speaking, but my body is always terrified. And it's like, I think I just learned to just take my body with me. I'm like, all right, dude, we're just going to do this Dharma talk together. And I'll check in with you. But let me talk a little bit more than you, please. <laughs> and it's this kind of like living alongside my anxiety. This has been really helpful for me with my anxiety. It's like anxiety is not something I think a nervous animal is going to get rid of anytime soon. So we learn to be with it in a loving way. Lastly, not least, doubt. The Buddha calls this uh, water that is obstructed by murky or uh, dirty sludge. Muddy water. It's a mind that is ultimately diluted or confused. It's a mind state that's overcome by perplexity, sometimes indecision. Perplexity is an interesting thing. You know, it's a word that I know, but not one I've looked the definition of. And what it means is an entangled or disoriented state that comes from feeling unable to understand or deal with something. So a lot of times doubt arises around uncertainty. And the fear, there's really fear and doubt kind of are good friends. And by its very nature, doubt is hard to see because it's this state of delusion. You know, it's a state of confusion. Because when I'm doubting something or I'm really terrified by something that's unknown, it's like the feeling is that I'm going to fall apart, right? The bottom's going to drop out. And so it, all of the hindrances kind of come along with doubt for me a lot of the time. One notable area of doubt is doubt in oneself, in one's goodness. You know, in here we call this Buddha nature. You know, Buddha touched the ground and said, the earth is my witness. This is my birthright, this present experience, because I'm living in it. That's all the adequacy I need. And one way that this shows up in my mind is my mind uses doubt by way of comparison a lot of the time. You know, like, well, this person's that far along or doing these things and I'm just not confident enough or I don't post enough on social media or, you know, whatever it may be. This doubt by way of comparison. And I think this is a great area to practice loving kindness. You know, sometimes I remember early on in my... Uh, practice, Dave said to me one time, I was going through this spiral of doubt and like a lot of inadequacy. And uh, he was like, I was just kind of like incriminating myself and all of these stories of like all this horrible person that I am and all this stuff. And he was just like, who, who says that that's true? Who told you that? He's like, have you ever asked your mind? Who says that that's true? The mind came up with that. We can challenge it and say, not today, Mara. I see you. Thanks. And the Buddha talks about comparison and he says, you know, we have to look out for thinking that we're less than. He says, we have to look out for thinking that we're better than. He says, we also have to look out for thinking that we're equal to. He said, because the whole thing of comparison is delusion. It's not that you're uniquely good. And it's not that you're uniquely bad. And it's not that we should really even think of ourselves in terms of comparing ourselves to others, because that's the problem. That's what the Buddha's pointing out. 
Easier said than done. Easier said than seen, for sure. So these visiting tendencies of mind, they cover up our true nature. The teachings assure us that the natural state of the heart and mind is bright, radiant, luminous, and that it is only obscured by visiting tendencies of the mind, but that within itself it's already peaceful. And so I'll close with reading the Metta Sutta from the Buddha. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened by duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. Wishing in gladness and safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they're weak or strong, omitting none, the great, the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downward to the depths, outwards and unbounded, free from hatred and ill will, whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding by not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being free from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. We'll sit for just a moment. 